All right, everyone. Good to see you here tonight. Thank you for coming out. Let's pray. We're going to get into our What We Believe series. Uh, Lord God, thank you for the, uh, the preciousness of the gospel and the deep love that you displayed for us in Jesus Christ. We would be utterly and absolutely hopeless if it were not for what you did for us. There's no way we can save ourselves. There's no one else. There's no other person, no other institution or anything that can. And so we thank you uh, that you did what it takes and you offer us this gift. And uh, thank you for Jesus Christ. And we thank you that as we're going to take a look at tonight, that the best is still yet to come, that there's so much more in store. And thank you that you've revealed so much of this to us in Scripture, and we have so much to look forward to in the way of a certain hope of your return. We long for you. You are better than anything else, and we long to see you face to face. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord and treasure, we pray. Amen. All right, so we have made it to the end. Uh, pretty literally, we are here at the end of the at the end of the What We Believe series, although we'll see it's not actually the end, but uh, we're at the last of the 19 different articles. And some of you have been following along all this time, so we're at the, the last page here, Article 19 on the Resurrection, Return of Christ, and Related Events. And this deals with what is sometimes called in theology eschatology. And that word means this doctrine of last things. So, in one sense, this is, uh, we're at the end, but it's not completely the end, because we're going to read this, and I'm going to show you how there's going to be a little bit more that we're going to talk about, and why uh, we're going to do that. Well, I'll just tell you, we're going to do, we're going to deal with the articles that are listed in the doctrinal statement, and then we're actually going to have two more messages after this, uh, when we come back. We have bird songs, uh, Pastor Nick is going to uh, finish up the Psalm 1 messages, and we have a few things, but we're going to, we have our statement of faith, and you're going to see it lists eight different things, uh, but then we also have in the Constitution that states and clarifies that we also believe in the pre-tribulation rapture and the premillennial return of our Lord. So what we'll do is we'll come back and we'll do another message on what we believe about the millennium. And we'll do another one about what we believe about the, uh, the tribulation and the, the rapture as well. So hopefully those will be very interesting. And uh, it'll allow us to just focus on the, the eight things that are here tonight, which is still kind of a lot. So basically we're going to be hitting highlights here. But let's look at the doctrinal statement. And if you, if you don't have uh, the, the workbook, I'll just read it to you. It says, Article 19, the resurrection, return of Christ, and related events. We believe in the bodily resurrection, the ascension, the high priesthood, the second coming, the resurrection of the righteous dead, the change of the living in Christ, the throne of David, and his reign on earth. Now, one thing you might kind of notice if you look at this and you compare it to some of the other items in our doctrinal statement is that uh, it seems to be just written in a different style. And I haven't been able to look back and see exactly how this came about. I've seen some other doctrinal statements 
uh, that other churches within the General General Association of Regular Baptists use, and it seems to be the same way in a lot of them. So to me, it looks like there were some of the other statements that were written uh, sometime in, uh, longer ago, and maybe this was added onto it. And you can tell just the style is a little bit different, and it just kind of lists these eight things. But unfortunately, it doesn't really tell us a lot about them. It just lists that we believe in these things. So I figure maybe the best thing for us to do is to quickly go through these, and I'm going to try and basically explain what do we mean by this. And uh, some of these, we, can, we know what it's referring to. Some of them, by looking at the uh, scripture passages that are referenced in the doctrinal statement, it can clarify what these are about and kind of where they're going. And then, like I said before, there's some other issues regarding the, uh, the chronology of how this works with the, with the millennium, the tribulation, the rapture, and we'll deal with those in two different separate messages uh, so we can unpack those a little bit more fully. And one of the things actually that might be a little surprising, sometimes we're used to these issues of end time stuff being where Christians uh, that we may agree on a lot of things and get along and you start talking about end time stuff and all of a sudden the knives come out and people get upset and, you know, I believe this and what you believe. People get really mad at each other about these things. But actually what's pretty neat about, about this list is for the most part, Christians agree on the basics of this. There's some issues as far as timing that different Christians disagree on, but some of the basic core things uh, Christians for you know, two, two millennia have agreed on, that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he ascended, that he is coming again, that the dead in Christ will be raised. A lot of these are found in the, the Apostles' Creed. And so whether uh, you are a, a Baptist or a, a Lutheran or a, a Roman Catholic, uh, a lot of these are things that would be pretty standard across the board. There are some differences, and some of the differences in timing, uh, like I said, is sometimes where people argue about. But that's where I think it's, and, and those things can be important, but we shouldn't let those overshadow the, the key things that the Bible is on these that the Bible is very clear about and are incredibly important. So we're going to go through and talk about these. And what I'm going to do is give you each one and then kind of, I did my best to give kind of one summary sentence to kind of explain what this is. So if you're taking notes, that might be what you want to write down. And then on the screen too, I'll have some scripture that we can look at. Uh, There's probably going to be more scripture than you can physically look up, so I'll read it to you. You might want to jot down the references. Uh, A lot of these are the references that are in uh, the workbooks, if you have that, but not all of them. Uh, Just for sake of time, I left some out, and there's actually a few I added as well, just because I thought they were uh, important ones. So the bodily resurrection. And when you look at the scripture, the scripture references that are given, it makes it clear that here it's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ first. That this isn't necessarily talking about our resurrection quite yet. That's going to come up later in the doctrinal statement, but right now it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just clarifying on this, and even though um, some of this has been addressed in earlier messages, we can say as a summary that Jesus was physically and literally 
raised from the dead with an immortal resurrection body. So let me unpack that a little bit. And I want to say this as well. You might think, well, this isn't really an end times thing. I thought we were going to talk about end times stuff here today. Looking forward to that. You realize the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually an end times event? It's an end times event that has happened already. But the Jews, they viewed the resurrection as something that would happen at the end. But Jesus is the, the first fruits of the resurrection, that he received his special resurrection body early, and therefore it shows us what our resurrection body is going to be like. And it's a guarantee that this is what is in store for us as well. And if you were here when Pastor Nick and I went through First uh, Corinthians, you know, we spent a lot of time unpacking this, and those might be uh, messages from 1 Corinthians 15 that if you're interested, you could get the, the CDs of those and listen to them. But I think it's important that we reiterate that Jesus was physically and literally raised from the dead. This wasn't a metaphoric raising. He didn't just raise from the dead in our hearts. He didn't just raise from the dead spiritually, but actually with a body, a physical body that you could touch like Thomas did, he could eat all these different things. Matthew 28, 6 through 7, He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. John twenty twenty seven. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It was a physical, literal body that he had. And we'll add to this some of the things, some of the truth that we know from 1 Corinthians 15, that when he was raised, it was with an an immortal resurrection body. And so... um, It's a different type of body. It's not like Lazarus or some of the people that Jesus raised from the dead that we've seen in the book of Luke. There, Jesus brought them back, but they still had their normal body, and they actually would go through death again. I mean, none of those people are still walking around, but Jesus is because he is the one and the only one that has received an actual resurrection body, this different type of body that Scripture talks about that is is immortal, that is imperishable. 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So, there Paul is saying, how can some of you deny that this is going to happen for us? It happened to Christ, and therefore we know it's going to happen for us as well. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If this hasn't happened, then we are not saved. And we are wasting our time. But even more than that, it says, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And they're just dead. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. And we could go on, but for sake of time, we're going to stop there. So we see that this is absolutely crucial. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is this guarantee that we are going to be raised. And if this hadn't happened, if this wasn't a real literal thing, it's saying that we are wasting our time and we are still in our sins. I really like how during worship, uh, I really appreciate Brad connecting tonight's worship with what we talked about this morning. And there's so much that ties into this, that our eternity with God, being able to look beyond this life, is that essential part of the, the full message that we have. And we're going to see as we look at all this, it's being able to look beyond this life and valuing the things that are to come that's going to help us to live during the hard times that are in this life. So the bodily resurrection is important, and that starts all of this. And we have another event in the life of Christ, the second item that is uh, listed. That's the ascension. So the ascension, you think if something ascends, it's going up. So the ascension is what's referred to that after 40 days, Jesus ascended in the body to the Father in heaven. That he physically and literally left this world, and it describes him as going up. I don't know how far up he went. It said a cloud hid him. At some point, he must have uh, transferred to another realm, another dimension of being. But this is described in some places. The best place to look is Acts 1. Let me read starting with verse 6. So when they had all come together, this is 40 days after Jesus had been uh, raised, after they had all come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still looking forward to uh, Jesus doing this. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. He's promising them power and and that there's to take the gospel locally and to the ends of the earth. That's why we do that as well. And we had said these things as they were looking on. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. We have to assume these are angels that appeared and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we get a foretaste there of the return of Christ, that the way that Christ ascended, he's going to be returning the same way. So there's some different implications, I think, that we can draw from this. One, it talks about Christ, his personal ascendancy. I mean, he had came down from heaven. He had uh, entered the state of humiliation, taking the form of a servant, and even to death, and even to death on a cross. If you read Philippians 2, it talks about this, this coming down. But then he's raised by the Father, and he's, he's exalted. And so that's part of what this is, is uh, raising him back up to where he began and to his his position in heaven, his exaltation. Another implication here is his spiritual omnipresence, that that he is able to spiritually be 
with us in an omnipresent way. And it also connects with this heavenly ministry that we're going to see in a second. What is Jesus doing now? He is not physically on this earth in the body. He, he actually still has a body. He never gives that up. And, uh, but that earthly body is, is in heaven, in that realm. He's able to be with us spiritually and through the, through the Holy Spirit. But what is he doing right now? Well, that brings us to point number three. The high priesthood. And we will say this about it. That Jesus presently is seated at the right hand of the Father and continuously makes intercession for his people. And that is what Jesus is doing. He's at God's right hand, this place of honor and authority, and he is interceding for, for believers, for his people, those that have put their trust in him. And this is why you continue to be saved, even though we still sin, is that we have an advocate with the Father that is making intercession. He's going on our behalf for us. Some verses that talk about this. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is a go-between. It's in the middle. Think of a median that's in the highway. It's in between. And Jesus is this bridge between us and God the Father. And he's able to be this perfect mediator because of the qualities of who he is. Being fully God and fully human, it's like a bridge that is, on one side is anchored in his genuine humanity. The other side is anchored in his genuine divinity. And because this, he is perfectly, like no one else possibly could, able to bridge God and man. So we have one mediator, we don't have lots. Uh, Pastor Nick and I are, are not your mediators, okay? We, uh, we don't function that way. We can tell you about the mediator, but the one mediator is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The book of Hebrews has a lot about Jesus' role as high priest, that he is the ultimate high priest. He's, he uh, went beyond every high priest that is in the Old Testament system. He is by far better in so many ways. And part of the reason that Jesus, that God had to become a human being is so he could be the high priest for us, to be that bridge, to be the mediator, to be the one to make an offering for us. That's what priests would do. And the reason that this works is that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And so be, the reason that he had to become fully man is to pay the sins of humanity that had to be done by a human being representing us. And he had to be fully God in order for his sacrifice to be of worth, to pay for the sins of, uh, of anyone, of everyone that will trust him. A mere human being could not do that. I said in another passage in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, and we know that we do, we have an advocate 
with the Father, Christ, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's saying we're not supposed to sin, but First John also makes it clear that we do sin. But the reason that we can stay saved is because we have this advocate. We have, uh, the Greek word is a paraclete. Sometimes it gets translated anything from comforter to, to lawyer. It literally means one called alongside. And, okay, I could tell you this. This is maybe the nerdiest thing I have ever told you, okay? And I don't know how many people will appreciate this, but I realized once that I, I know, prepare yourself to be how nerdy this is. I realized I know the Klingon word for, for paraclete, Okay? So those of you in Star Trek, um, there is in, some, okay, <laughs> I, I will just pretend that you're all super geeked about this, okay? There's an episode where Worf, okay, is put on trial, and he is able to uh, have somebody come alongside him as, as his helper, okay, as he stands on trial, to literally stand with him and do this with him, and it's, it's his Kadich, Okay? And he calls Captain Picard and to, to accompany him and to do this. And it just hit me, that would be how Paraclete should be translated in Klingon. So again, I, I told you up front, that's the nerdiest thing you will ever hear from me. But that's what this word means, one called alongside, to be a lawyer, a comforter, an advocate, one to be with you. And so the Holy Spirit is a Paraclete. He is with us, but Scripture says he's another Paraclete because we already have one. We have an advocate the first one is Jesus Christ, and he is in heaven alongside God. And so that when we sin, and Satan accuses us, so he's the prosecuting attorney saying, look, this person sinned. We have an advocate saying, yes, but I have paid for that sin. It has been taken care of. This person is, has been already declared righteous in your sight. And that is the reason why we stay saved, because we have an advocate that is always interceding for us. It's also why it's important that Jesus Christ remains the God-man for all eternity because we need that mediator for all eternity as well. Romans 8.34 is a great passage for this as well. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Spend time praising God for the interceding work of Jesus Christ that he's doing for you if you've trusted in him. If you have not trusted in him, right now you don't have anyone interceding for you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Point number four, the second coming. So there's been one coming already. Jesus came in humility as a suffering servant. They thought, well, he's going to come, he's going to bring the kingdom, he's going to destroy his enemies. Because when they looked at the Old Testament, sometimes they saw all these uh, prophecies about this is what the Messiah is going to do. In a sense, they're right, but they didn't realize that some of the prophecies were for his first coming. Some of the prophecies are for his second coming. And it's like when you drive out into the mountains, sometimes you can't tell that there's like two mountain ranges. It looks like they're all kind of together. But if you get closer, you realize, okay, there's one range of mountains here, and then maybe a big valley and another range of mountains there. So as the prophets looked ahead, sometimes it was hard to tell which mountain range it was. So you have the first mountain range of his first coming, that he comes as a suffering servant, like in Isaiah 53. But other passages that he's going to come as this triumphant king. 
So he comes the first time, you know, riding on the, the colt of a donkey, and he's going to come again riding on a, on a war horse to vanquish his enemies, to make everything right. So we can say about this, Jesus with certainty, Jesus will physically and literally return to the earth. I keep emphasizing that this is literal and this is physical. That he's the same way that he went up, the same way that he rose from the dead, this is how he's coming back. So in a way that with a body where you can touch him. This has not happened yet because Jesus is not physically on this, this earth. Yes, he's with us spiritually. Okay, and there's these things that happen. But he is going to actually, literally, like you can see him with your eyes, you could touch him with your hands, return to this earth. And scripture talks about this, that he will, re- he will return to Mount of Olives and, and do this. And we'll talk more about some of the, the details about this when we talk about uh, the, the tribulation and, and, and some of these things. But, like I said, it's going to be literal and physical. And I think another thing that we can say about this is the timing of this is imminent and unknown to us. Imminent means it could happen at any moment. That there's not a big list of things that have to happen first, but this is something that, uh, that could happen at any moment. And so we're supposed to be ready now. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it could happen. And it's not known to us. It is kept a secret. Let's look at some of the passages that talk about this, um, especially the first part here. John 14.3 about the literal and physical return, he said, before he died, he said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Acts 1.11, those two angels, remember they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the heavens? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So if they saw him physically ascend in the body, into the clouds, he disappears. You re- play that in reverse, and that's how it's going to be. He's going to come from the clouds physically with a, with a body. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I think it's in one sense it's going to be, uh, you know, play the tape backwards, but it might even be more spectacular. Matthew twenty four twenty seven says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. We've had some pretty impressive storms here this, this summer. Have any, any of those where you've gone outside and you see the lightning? It just lights up the sky all across. You can't even tell where it is. When Christ comes, this is going to be a visible thing. This is going to be an unmistakable thing. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So his mission is different. He's already taken care of sin on the cross. Now he's going to come to save and rescue us in a different way. And some of the passages that talk about the timing being unknown, but it being an any moment type of thing, here's three you could look at. James 5, 8 through 9 says, You also be patient, 
So there's an application there. Why should we be patient? It says, establish your hearts. Okay, our hearts should be changed. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another. Notice there's all these applications. Sometimes you think, you know, oh, the return of Christ and all this, that doesn't have anything to do with practical Christian life. Well, uh, the writers of Scripture thought it definitely had to do with practical Christian life today. Being patient, grumbling, all these things are affected. It says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge is at the door. He's got his hand on the knob. It means any moment that judge could come in. And that should affect how we live, knowing that, well, Jesus Christ is always watching. God always knows. But there could be any moment where, where he comes into the room, so to speak. And how do you want to be living at that moment? Grumbling, complaining, in bitterness against other people, in sin? Or would you hope that he catches you doing something that's serving him? Matthew twenty-five thirteen. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Passages that say he's going to come like a thief in the night. You don't know when the thief's going to come. It's unexpected. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So, by the way, when people make these predictions about, I know exactly when Jesus is going to return, I, I don't even have to look at it. You just know that that is false. Because Jesus has told us, I'm not going to tell you when I'm coming. The whole point of this is so that you're always having to be ready. And so that should change our lives, whether he does return in our lifetime or today, or if it is a long time, we need to be living today like he's coming back at any moment. And we'll be able to talk more about this as we, uh, as we keep going in this message and in the last two. Point number five, the resurrection of the righteous dead. That's the way the doctrinal statement has it. And I'll summarize this by saying that at Christ's return, the dead in Christ will be raised with immortal resurrection bodies. So it started talking about that in 1 Corinthians 15, that there's this time where we are going to be raised too. And this is specifically about if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ, that this is what you have to look forward to. And <clears throat> that you will be raised with the same kind of bodies that will be immortal like, like Jesus, that maybe have powers beyond uh, what we have now, that indestructible. It's kind of an awesome thing to look forward to. I mean, literally super bodies. And I think they'll be a lot more physical than oftentimes we imagine. You were not designed to be a floaty spirit, Okay. God made the physical world and said it was good. And to be separated from your physical body is a bad thing. Death is bad. And at the end, God is going to undo death. He's going to put us back together and in an even better way so we cannot come apart again. Some of the passages that talk about this, we've looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So this is what happens here at this uh, at this time of Christ's return, at the, at the rapture, it talks about um, the dead in Christ will rise first. So this is slightly before what we're going to talk about in a second, being the rapture. It says the dead in Christ, those who have died, will be raised 
first. In 1 Corinthians 15, we'll just look at a little of this. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Now what is sown is perishable. What you put in the ground when you bury someone is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So you're going to be raised in a way that cannot perish again. It is sown with dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now that gets a little bit confusing too when it talks about natural and spiritual because that could make the idea that, well, our physical body now, but our other one is going to be spiritual, like just some kind of floaty ghost body. But I think when you put everything in Scripture together, that's not the way to think about it. Because those adjectives, when it talks about natural body, or sometimes when it says uh, a body that's, um, it's talking about a body that's of the, of the breath or of the spirit, it doesn't necessarily mean what the body is made out of, but, it, but what animates it, what, what powers it. Let me give you an example. If you said that there are two ships, one is a steamship and one is a sail ship, that doesn't mean that one of these ships is made out of steam and the other is made out of sails. It means that one is, is powered by uh, steam and the other is powered by sails. So right now we have a, a physical body that is um, powered in the, the normal mortal way, in a sense the same way that um, other animals are as well. And so we're mortal. But the new body is going to be powered and, and, and animated by God's spirit and therefore will be immortal. But we, it'd be interesting to keep talking about that, but we've got to keep moving on. 1 Corinthians 15.52, and again says, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Now, the doctrinal statement doesn't say this, but Scripture does also refer to unbelievers also being raised. But they won't be raised in a good way. Um, John 5.29 refers to this as a resurrection of judgment. Other places you can look that talk about this are Revelation 20. Five, and also Daniel twelve two, and so unbelievers are raised not with the same kind of quality body that we have, but a body that will be fit for them to be in, well, a place that Scripture describes as the lake of fire for all eternity. That is not the resurrection that you want to have. Number six. The change of the living in Christ. Like I said, we have to, three more of these, so we, we're keeping moving on here. At the return of Christ, all living believers will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and will be instantly changed to immortal bodies to receive our resurrection bodies. So point five was talking about those that are dead in Christ. This is talking what happens if you're still alive when Christ returns. And a few of the scripture passages that you could look at to talk about this, that do speak about this. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you something that this has not been revealed yet. This is a new truth that has been kept hidden. He says, we shall not all sleep, 
It's a metaphor for dying. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. 1 Thessalonians 4 is a classic passage that talks about this as well. Verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The word rapture means to be caught up. That's where we talk about the rapture. That's where that is. So I know different Christians may argue about when does this take place, but the first thing we have to realize is it talks about a rapture and it talks about this happening. And we can't just uh, say there's not going to be one. Every Christian, no matter if you have a different view, should believe in the rapture because of this verse. And it says in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. These things about the end times and this, this is supposed to be practical. This helps us to get through life now, knowing our future hope, knowing what is going to happen to those that we love, that God has taken to himself already, that we're going to be, they're going to be raised, we're going to be raised with them and all of us together with Jesus Christ forever. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 also talks about us being transformed to be like his glorious body. Point number seven, the throne of David. There are these prophecies in the Old Testament about David uh, someone that will sit on the throne of David forever. So Jesus will fulfill prophecies by reigning on the throne of King David. And this was something he will reign on this throne forever. Some of the passages, Luke one thirty two, talking about Christ. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So it's making it really clear that, yes, Jesus is going to get the throne of David. He is going to be the fulfillment of this. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, that's a passage that talks about, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. Uh, Sometimes you hear that a lot at Christmas time. And in verse 7, it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forward, forth and forevermore. And then Acts 2, 29 through 30 also talks about this, specifically saying that Jesus is one, uh, that, that God would fulfill his oath and to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, one of David's descendants. So Jesus fulfills that, I will say, too, if you believe in a, an earthly millennial kingdom that Jesus comes back and reigns on this earth, then it allows all of these prophecies to be fulfilled very, very literally. So with that, moving on to our final one, which is his reign on earth. There we go. That Jesus will reign on earth. And when we look at these uh, statements, and we'll talk more about this. He will reign on earth for a thousand years, and after that, God will dwell with man eternally on the new earth. So, a few different things that we'll briefly unpack here, and we'll be able to talk more about this uh, coming up. But in Revelation 
uh, 20, 1 through 6. It says, Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hands the keys of the bottomless pit and the great chain. Talks about him seizing uh, the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And so it goes on and it talks about, it refers to this thousand-year period a few different times. It says, Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ, for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So you see this repeated phrase about the thousand years. Years. So that's what's called the millennium. We'll talk more about that on a different message. Uh, and there's some Christians that debate, does Jesus return before the millennium? Does he return at the end? Is it all symbolic? But after this, actually we don't spend eternity in heaven. Sometimes we think that, well, heaven's where I spend eternity. But in reality, if you look and you read the end of the book of Revelation, we spend eternity on a new earth. We're designed to live on an earth and God will uh, give a new earth or refurbish this earth so that it is new. And we live here probably, again, with much more of a physical existence than sometimes we assume. And so we don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but it talks about this in, uh, in the book of Revelation, especially in verse 21. You can read that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And you can read the rest of Revelation 21. So with this, you say, so what? How does this matter? We've actually seen a lot of things already that have said how this applies to us that it's constantly being connected with practical Christian living. So this tells us that we need to have hope for what comes ahead, and this hope that we have should change how we live now. Also, knowing the end gives us purpose in this life now. You know, the Greeks, they thought that history was just this cycle, this endless wheel that kept going over and over and not really going anywhere. Whereas in the biblical worldview, it's a line. There's a beginning, there's an end. And we're on this line headed towards an end. And because of that, we have purpose, there's direction. Atheists, hey, it's all just random. There is no purpose or direction, but for us there is. History is headed somewhere. 
Therefore, we have purpose in this life. Like when you drive home tonight, you will have purpose because you know you're going somewhere. You're not going aimlessly. History is going somewhere towards an end. And knowing the end, it also changes how we should live now. It changes how we should treat people now. You've seen things that are in the news with uh, the events that took place in Charlotte with um, racism and different things going on there. Read the book of Revelation. If you are a racist, you are not going to like heaven. The racism that we have in our hearts needs to be stamped out because we are not going to enjoy that. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Okay, if you do not like being around people that are not like you ethnically, you will not enjoy heaven. God must change us in that way. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 also says the same thing. Behold, I saw a great number, multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribe and people and languages standing before the Lamb clothed in white robes. The most important thing about us is, is not what nationality we have. We're, if we're together in Christ, we're clothed in the same white robes. And God is purposely saving people from every nation, from every tribe and language, because he deserves to be glorified from all the peoples of this earth. And finally, knowing the end glorifies Jesus Christ because all of history is heading towards an end, towards a goal, a purpose, and it's for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you for what you have revealed to us about where history is headed and ultimately is headed for your glory. Help us to live with that hope and in the meantime, to live the way we should, to be expecting you to be coming at any moment, Lord God, and to make the most of our time. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.